Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We've been talking a little bit about, over the last few weeks, Messiah's promise, in which he said, I will build my congregation and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That is his promise, to build up his body. And for this year, I'd like us to be thinking about, or at least for the next few months in this year, maybe the entire year, to be thinking about how the Lord will build up his body through Beth Ariel, within Beth Ariel and outside of Beth Ariel. We want to see him build the congregation, and we want to be part of that building structure that he is building. And last week, we talked a little bit about the means by which he begins that building process, and that is prayer. And so we looked at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. And then we drew some analogies or comparisons with some other prayers that are written about in Scripture. None other than Eliezer, Abraham's servant in, what was that, Genesis chapter 24. Or the insight that Abraham had, the promise God made to him about having a son in Genesis chapter 18. This morning, what I'd like us to do is to look at Matthew chapter 13. Because the Lord will build his body, and how will he do that? Well, he tells us here in this parable of the sower how he will build his body. So let me read these verses to you, first of all. In chapter 13, verse 1, he says, That same day Yeshua went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying a sower went out to sow, or a farmer went out to farm, or to spread seed. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. When you turn over to verse 18 of the same chapter, he then begins to explain the parable to us. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom 
and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world... The deceitfulness of riches choked the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. This is the first of a series of parables. So first of all, what is a parable? You know, the word parable comes from two Greek words, para and balo. The word balo means to cast, and para means to come alongside. So a parable is an idea that's cast alongside of another idea. Actually, it is a life story. It is a natural, genuine event, and cast alongside it is a lesson that is to be drawn from that event. And so that's what a parable is. And parables are not easy to unscrutinize or to understand. In fact, if you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 26, some interesting passages about Proverbs in this chapter. In Proverbs 26, in verse 7, Solomon writes, like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like a thorn, verse 9, that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. So it's important to understand the proverb or otherwise you're seen as a fool. So I kind of come to this passage with a little trepidation, you know, especially in light of what Solomon says. But what he's pointing out is this. Just as a lame man's legs do not help him, or a drunkard man who then gets his hands toward a thorn and can't pull it out in time because he's not aware, similarly is a parable in the mouth of fools. That is to say, you have a certain understanding of a truth, but you don't respond to it. So it's like a lame person who has legs, but they're useless to him. They don't help him. The parable is meant to help, but if we don't seek to understand it, then we find ourselves not being benefited by it. And so... Yeshua speaks at this juncture in parables, and it's in chapter 13, and all the parables are sort of lumped together. And the way that Matthew crafts this is really quite stunning and beautiful. Take a look at this. Before we look at the parable, just to see its context so you can understand what he's trying to draw attention to, look at verse 1 again in chapter 13. He says, that same day Yeshua went out of the house and sat beside the sea. But then look at verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable. So there's really two sections in chapter 13. There's the section in which he's outside the house, giving parables to the disciples and to everyone who's hearing. And then when you get to verse 36, he goes inside the house. And now he explains the parable only to his disciples. 
So those are the two sections that are separated. I think because the parable is meant to tell us something of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, I'll show you that in a moment, perhaps the reason why he gives the first set of parables outside is because it will speak to issues regarding the external nature of the kingdom. When he goes inside the house, he begins to, res- to speak about those internal realities that are to be a part of those who are members of the kingdom. So there's an inside-outside kind of thing that's happening here. What's also interesting, if you look at verse 1, it says, that same day Yeshua went out of the house. Well, what day? Well, it's the day of what occurred recorded in chapter 12. Now, chapter 12 is the most important chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Because chapter 12 records the national rejection of Yeshua as Messiah by the Jewish people. Chapter 12 doesn't mean that every Jewish person rejected Messiah. That is certainly not true. Many Jewish people in the time of Yeshua believed in him. We have his 12 disciples. We, have, we know of Joseph of Arimathea. We know of Nicodemus. We know early on in the book of Acts, 3,000 Jewish people come to believe in him. We know later in like chapter 4 or chapter 6, there's a host of the Levites, the priests, come to know Messiah as well. But what goes on in Matthew chapter 12 is the rejection on a national level speared, headed by the Jewish religious establishment of his day. Remember, Yeshua came into the world and he proclaimed the same message John the Baptist, Yochanan, had proclaimed. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. For John, it meant Messiah is coming. But when Messiah comes, his message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is dawning upon us. The opportunity for the messianic age has come, and the Messiah is in our midst. Now it's for the Jewish people, led by their leaders, to receive him. And what is true of the Jewish people throughout history is true of what happens at this juncture in Israel's history. All throughout Israel's history, there is a mixed crowd. There is the faithful and there's the unfaithful. There's the faithful remnant and there is the rebellious and the disobedient. By way of example, we go to the Exodus. And when the Jewish people are brought out of Egypt, they're brought to the promised land. They come to Kadesh Barnea. And the Lord, through Moses, leads them to spy out the land. As the spies go into the land and come back after 40 days, they report that the land is just as God had said it would be. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of those 12 spies tell us, not only was it a land just as God described, But it was also a land in which others have already settled in. It was a land in which there were enemies in our midst with fortified cities. And these were big guys. In fact, they go on to call them the Nephilim, the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 6 to speak of these weird people that emerge during the time of Noah. You can read of it. It's called the fallen ones. Nephal means to fall. The Nephilim, the fallen ones. So these spies come back, 
The majority of them say we can't take the land because the enemy is too strong. But a faithful remnant, too, Joshua and Caleb, say we can enter the land. And because of the rebellion of the Jewish leaders at the time of Kadesh Barnea, the Jewish people are consigned to a judgment in which they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In a similar fashion, in a similar fashion, Messiah has come into our midst and he's proclaiming to them the kingdom is at hand. And the Jewish leaders in Matthew chapter 12 reject him outright like the spies rejected God's call to go into the land. The result was 40 years of wandering, judgment on the Jewish people. The result of Israel's rejection nationally, though not individually, of the Jewish, of the Jewish Messiah is that judgment would hit. These parables about the judgment that is to come. Matthew 12, you have the national rejection. Matthew 13, on the same day now, all of a sudden, for the first time, Yeshua speaks with regard to parables. Now, how did that rejection take place? Let me just explain very briefly. In Matthew chapter 12, Yeshua heals a man who is dumb and he is blind. And when Messiah comes in, he sees this individual and he just heals him by a word of his power. And the man can both see and speak. The Jewish people that observe what he just did say, is this not the son of David? In other words, is this not the Messiah? Why did they ask, are you the Messiah? What was it that Yeshua did that drew their attention to his messianic claims? Well, according to Jewish tradition, when demons were cast out, the rabbis taught that you would need to get the name of the demon, and then by using its name, you would cast it out. Yeshua does that on one occasion. You remember the man of Gadara? He says that he is possessed by demons. He says, who are you? They say, we are legion, for we are many. And then Yeshua casts them out by the use of the name. But the problem that the rabbis talked about is that when you had a demon that caused an individual not to be able to speak, how would you get the demon's name so as to cast out the demon? The rabbi said, in such cases, we cannot deliver the person from demonic oppression. But when the Messiah comes, he will not need the name of the demon in order to cast the demon out. So how will we know who the Messiah is? If there is an individual who, by virtue of a demon, can speak, God, the Messiah doesn't need the demon's name. It will just happen. And that's what happens in Matthew 12. And so they begin to ask, well, isn't this the son of David? Isn't this what you've been telling us to look for? And here it's manifested in our sight. Now the Jewish leaders have to make a choice. Either they say, yes, he is, and acknowledge him as Messiah, or they reject him and bring upon themselves the judgment of God. The Jewish leaders, because they did not want to lose their power and influence, they now have to explain how this so-called miracle occurred because the man can speak. And so they say, well, he didn't do this by the power of God. He did this by the power of the evil one. When they consigned his work to the power of the evil one, that was the national rejection of him as their Messiah. And as a result, like 
at Kadesh Barnea in the Old Testament, judgment is set. The parables are meant to distinguish the faithful remnant from those that would be rebellious. That's why he says, look at Matthew chapter 13. He says, the disciples come in verse 10, and they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why are you speaking to the people in parables? And he answered, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In other words, he speaks in parables so as to set up a line of demarcation between the faithful and the rebellious, the faithful and the unfaithful ones. The parables will serve to distinguish them. Why? Because the faithful ones will hear the parable and they will be responsive to it. The unfaithful ones will hear the parable and they will ignore it and not be responsive to it. In fact, if you look at the very last verse of Matthew chapter 13, it highlights this truth because it says that Yeshua did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their faithlessness, because of their unbelief. That's always the key, trusting in God, having faith in him, believing his word as he reveals it to us. That's the setup of these parables. They're set up because Israel as a nation, though not as individuals, but as a nation, has rejected Messiah. And now Messiah is calling out individuals from the nation to respond to him as Messiah. What is the mechanism? The parable. Because as the parable is said, those who are faithful will say, yes, Lord, we acknowledge you. And those who are rebellious will hear the parable but will say, no, I'm not interested. Now, this parable is recorded in two other places, Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. And they're very interesting when you compare them. We can't get into all of that, but when you compare them, there are some very telling distinctives that come out, and they help us to crystallize the meaning here. But look at this parable one more time. He tells them that there was a sower who went out to sow some seed. By the way, in the Greek, there's the definite article. It doesn't say a sower. It says the sower went out to cast some seed on the ground. Why the? I think for two reasons. One, remember, Yeshua is outside. Perhaps there was a farmer who was plowing. He took a look at him and he said, the sower is going to sow seed. Take note of the significance of that. The other reason is because when he describes the parable, He answers their question in explaining it. He says the sower is the son of man. If you look at verse 37, that's what he tells us the sower is. It is the Messiah of Israel. He's the one sowing the seed. So when he says the sower, he means to say, we're not just talking about any sower sowing a seed. The Messiah of Israel is sowing a seed. So now what is he telling us? We're talking about this period of time When Messiah came, offered the kingdom, kingdom was rejected, he's coming again. He's telling us of what this period of time between the first coming of Messiah and his second coming will be characterized by. Yeshua has already told us he's going to build his congregation. My question is, how will he build it? This parable tells us one of the ways he builds it. He builds his congregation By the sowing of seed. That's how he does it. He sows 
seeds. He plants seeds. So first of all, who's the sower? It is Messiah who is the sower. He's the one sowing. (laughs) You know, he's the one planting. He's the one scattering the seed. But how does he do it? He does that through you and I. What is the seed? He tells us, if you look in Matthew chapter 13, in Matthew 13, he says, the seed is the word of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 8, he tells us the seed is the word of God. So the seed is the word of God, which embodies the promise of the coming kingdom. So Messiah will build his congregation by sowing his seed through his people who believe in him. And the seed that he sows is his word. So now this tells us the central, one of the central major concerns of this period of time is the dissemination of the word of God. And I would say we are living at a time when the word of God is being terribly ignored. On a large scale. Maybe not in this room. You know, I've just signed up for UVerse. Do you ever see that? UVerse.com? Oh my goodness, what an incredible website. It gives me emails. You're behind two days. You're behind three days on your reading of the Word of God. I said, oh, I got to get away and get out my iPhone and just start reading. And then, then it tells me, you've now read 5% of the 365 days, 10%, and then a little, met, a little metal comes up, and I'm on. I'm into this, you know? I'm into this one. But most people, the Word of God, the Bible, are you kidding me? That's an old thing. What are you talking about? But this day and age is to be characterized by the sowing of the word of God. That's why the proclaiming of the word of God must be central and must be the heartthrob of what it is we do. Because that's the means by which he's going to build his body. Now, up in Santa Clarita, I have a study up there twice a month teaching on the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 4, It says the word of God is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides the soul from the spirit, the bone from the marrow, and it is a discerner and scrutinizer of the heart. The word of God, he says, is living because it comes from the living God of the universe. It's living because it can transform your very life. I mean, think about this. You read a passage, and if you respond to it, and you say, Lord, come into my life, you know, where he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish. It can give us eternal life. It can be the purveyor of good news, which it bears. It is the living word. This is not just a history book or a prophetic book or a parabolic book or an instructional guide. This is the living word of God. And therefore, we would be very, um, what, would I, what would I say, callous or just very uh, foolish if we were not responsive to it. That's what the writer to the Hebrews wants to tell his Jewish readers. 
Be responsive to God's word because the Lord has spoken to us in many ways and in a variety of concerns in the past by the prophets. But today he speaks to us through and in his son. And how does he speak to us in his son? Well, you just heard his son's words to you in the word of God, which is lives and breathes forever. The word of God is living. It is active. It can transform. It can change. It can radically alter our whole countenance. It can radically alter our whole disposition. It can radically alter how we perceive life and the values that we hold. It can radically change us. But then it tells us it is sharper than any, any, any two-edged sword. It is that probing. It is piercing into the very soul and spirit. So when Yeshua tells us, look, this age is characterized by the sowing of the seed, and the seed is the word of God, that's what we need to be casting out. And that's what we need to be spreading. That's what Yeshua is doing. He's spreading seed. And he's to do that through us. You know, it reminds me of when the uh, disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing. They got their nets on one side and they're not getting any fish. And Yeshua says, throw it on the other side. And Peter says, wait a minute. You know, whether it's here or there, what difference can it make? You know, and Yeshua says, "Eh, just try, you know, see what happens. And then when they just throw it on the other side, all of a sudden the net is so uh, filled with fish, they can't even pull the net in. We have to spread the seed. If it's not being responded to on this side, let's spread it on that side. Let's spread the seed throughout the field. And what is the field? The field is the world. That's what he tells us. The word has to go out through the whole earth. And while the seed may be out to the whole earth, the important thing is, and this is where you and I come in, is the soil upon which it falls. Because Yeshua tells us there are four kinds of soil, which is another way of saying there are four kinds of people. Or another way of saying there are four kinds of hearts that are evaluating the word of God. He says in the first case, As the sower is throwing the seed. And you know, the way that seeds were cast in the ancient world is a farmer would either just have a sack of seed and would just walk and throw. Or they take a sack of seed and attach it to a donkey. And as the donkey was led through the field, they put a hole in the sack and the seed would be so spread. In other words, it's indiscriminately spread abroad, far and wide. And he says, some of the seed fell. Notice it wasn't deliberately placed there. The seed goes to everyone. The word of God is for everyone. The living God of the universe is for everyone, Jew and non-Jew alike. It's spread everywhere. And he says, when it is spread everywhere, you don't know where it will fall. He says, sometimes it falls alongside the road. What's interesting here is in Luke's passage, he uses four different prepositions to speak about where the seed falls. When he talks about the seed falling on the wayside, he says it falls alongside, para, alongside the wayside. By the wayside, he means, you know, those uh, those roadways, those Uh, sandy ways that are trodden down by people walking on them and they become hard. 
You know, if you were to come to my house on the side of my house, which leads out a gate to the front, there's a dirt path. But you would know it's dirt because it's been trodden for so long that it's just hard clay dirt. And when it rains, it doesn't become mud. The rain just flows off of it because it's hardened, it's padded down. And so he's saying the seed that's thrown by the wayside, it falls on this hard soil, this hard ground that's trampled down, and the seed can't grow. Both Luke and Mark say that the evil one comes and snatches the seed and takes it from the individual. And how often have we seen that? Where the word of God is shared, it's brought before a given individual, and the individual could care less about what it is we're saying. Just completely callous and unmoved by it. Yeshua says sometimes that will happen. By the way, if you look at this percentage-wise, think about this. Four types of soil, right? One type is responsive. That means three-quarters of the dissemination of the word of God has no lasting impact. That means 75% of our teaching of God's word has no impact. Only 25%. If we take his parable that way, though I'm not saying we should. That means three quarters of you will forget what I've just said. (laughs) You know? 25% will be there. But three quarters, is that amazing? But listen, we don't work on percentages. We work in regard to the calling of God. Go into all the world and proclaim the seed. Proclaim the word. And so some will fall alongside the pathways. And because of the soil is hard, it will not be received. He tells us not only is some of the seed fall on the wayside, but then if you look, he tells us, Other seeds fell on rocky ground. Here he uses in Luke, he uses the word epi. It falls upon. Before it was alongside. Now this one is upon the rocky ground. What he means is this is like dirt and underneath are stones that are not seen. And as the seed goes in, it can't germinate. It catches a little bit. But it can't really germinate because there's stony ground underneath and therefore no roots can take hold. And therefore the seed doesn't grow up and it doesn't germinate, it doesn't grow. Yeshua tells us, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but it endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, because of his faith, immediately he falls away. By the way, that word falls away is the word apostasia, for the word he apostatizes. So what is he saying? He's saying here, there was an initial receptive moment. There was a sense of joy. You know, people come into our service, and I've got to tell you, Our worship service, in my opinion, is wonderful. I mean, when the musicians play and the scripture is read and the dancers dance and the candles are lit, and most of the time, maybe not today, when the liturgy is recited, there is a joy 
in which we are brought into the presence of God. Don't you see that? Don't you feel that? Don't you experience that? You know, you come and you say, a congregation this small, under 100, do we really have this kind of talent in this small group used of God in such a marvelous and powerful way? People come in and they'll say, love the worship, you know. People even say sometimes, you know, you're not a bad speaker, you know, I I can listen to you. And then they go away. And then we don't see them again. Or maybe we see them again, but they're just, I love the joy, I love the happiness. But you know what? When the challenge comes, maybe you can't live the lifestyle you want to live. Maybe you can't hold the values any longer that you would like to hold. When there is challenges because of the word, because of the expectation of what it means to be a follower of Messiah, we say we like all of that, we enjoy all of that, we come together for a while, but in the long-term run of things, we decide I'm not being counted in because I don't want the change to happen, the tribulation, the challenges, whatever it might be. That's what Yeshua is saying. There are people like that. Is that not true? Maybe some of us have been like that before this seed took root and really grew. Maybe we experienced some of the joy of coming to a church, joy of people loving on us and embracing us and being friendly to us, all of those good things. But then when it came time for this to be the real deal, we say, no, I'm not sure that's really what I want. You know, I, when I graduated from seminary, Billy Graham spoke at our graduation, just came back from Russia. My mother was in the crowd watching me graduate, and he spoke this message. And, you know, I mean, it's Billy Graham, right? It's got to be good. I mean, how bad can it be? And Mary Lou looks over to my mother, and she says, so, Mom, what did you think of this? What did you think? My mother said, he's a handsome man, isn't he? enjoyed, enjoyed the moment, enjoyed the celebration. Her son, look, he's got a robe on. Look at this. I've never seen this before. And, and all of that. But when it came time, but mom, did you hear what he said? And are you willing to embrace the one he spoke about? Well, I enjoyed everything, but, you know, don't push me too far. My mother didn't say that. I'm just commenting, you know. But that's what happens sometimes. But Messiah said not only did the, the seed get thrown and it fell sort of almost haphazardly alongside the road and upon the rocky soil, but then he says some of it fell in the midst of, enmenos, in the midst of thorny bushes, you know. And the seed begins to grow a little bit, but the thorns and the bushes around it choke the plant so it can't grow and have life. And Yeshua says sometimes people embrace it and love what's going on, but then when the cares of the world, the desires of the world, it's interesting, he doesn't say bad things at all. He talks about good things in the world, the pleasantries of the world, the wonderful things of the world. They can rob us of the eternal realities. You know, there's nothing wrong with making a lot of money. But if that's what you're focused on, it can choke the life of the Spirit of God. I mean, there's nothing great about not making a lot of money either. And there's some people who take pride in being poor, perhaps. But the point is 
that the cares of this world, the things that we are sort of entranced by, the things of the world that lure us, and it could be many different things. I love music. You know, there are times I said to myself, gee, if I had to live my life over, I think I would have become a musician. And then I think back, and then I say, but this is what God has me, and I'm delighted to teach the Word of God. And then I think, how could I compare being a musician with teaching the Word of God, you know? Um, but, listen, I love music. If I was an artist, you know, or had artistic ability, I'm sure I would ask the question, gee, if I had my life live over, would I really make that the focus? These are good things. It's good to be a good musician, a great musician, or a great artist, or a great philosopher, a great writer, a great thinker, a great chef, all those things, whatever it is. He's saying these good things can distract us from the most important good thing, which is a relationship with God. And so sometimes the seed falls, but then it's choked out by the good things of the world that we enjoy too. But then he says, and this is kind of cool in Luke, then he says, but some of the seed fell ace in the ground. All the other seed was alongside, it was upon, it was near, in the midst of, but now the seed is in the ground. And that seed, he says, germinates and it grows. And as it grows, it produces a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. In Luke's, he says, it produces thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. He reverses the order of numbers. But what's the point? Yeshua is saying, I will build my congregation. And as the word is the means by which his congregation is built, it will bear fruit. That's his promise to us. It will bear fruit. Even if it's just 25% of it, that 25% will be 30, 60, or 100-fold. In other words, we have the promise that if we would disseminate the seed, there will be growth. And that growth will be the building of his congregation. Now, in closing, and the musicians can come on up, in closing, if you look at Mark chapter 4, it's recorded in Mark 4 and also in Mark chapter, uh, Luke chapter 8. But if you look at Mark chapter 4, Uh, Chapter 4. He says this, and let's listen to his words to us. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? He just told them the parable of the sower in verses 1 through 10 or so. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand All the parables. And then he says, the sower sows the word. Now when he says, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand all these other parables? I think what he means to say are two things. If you don't understand this parable, you're not going to understand the other parables I'm telling. I think that's true. But I think he means something else. He's saying, if you don't understand this parable, how will you benefit 
from the parables at all. In in other words, he doesn't mean understand it intellectually. He means if you don't respond to this parable, how can you begin to respond to anything else of the teaching of God's word? It begins by being receptive to his word and embracing his son. And as he says in Matthew 13, to whom is given, much more will be given. When you come, you find that more understanding is the result. The more you invest yourself in God's word, the more and more you understand of God's word. The more you invest yourself in Messiah, the more and more you appreciate and understand who Messiah is and what is. In other words, it isn't that you understand it and you come. It means that you come in response to the the parable and in coming, more is learned. So he says, if you don't understand this, if you're not responsive to this, how can you begin to expect to understand, appreciate, experience more? It starts with the little things and gets to the bigger things. So what's the littlest thing? The littlest thing is Messiah has come, demonstrated himself to be Messiah, and now it's for us. Are we members of that faithful remnant like Joshua and Caleb, ready to go in and take the land? Are we like those disciples in the time of Yeshua who understood very little about him? but said, we know that you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? And they learned and they grew and they became deeper followers of him. So the parable is about how the Lord is going to build his kingdom during this era of the sowing of the seed. The seed was sowed somewhat this morning. So what kind of soil are you? What kind of soil am I? Are we the kind of soil that just is totally callous to this and I'm never coming again, you know, and I don't want to hear the word of God? Are we happy to be here? But then when we leave, we'll say, it was fun, but that's all it was. Or will we be the kind of soil, receptive heart, that says, yeah, I like this, but I don't know if I'm ready to change. And I don't know if I'm ready to make God really number one. So we let the cares and desires and pleasures, good things of this world, keep us from the greatest thing. Or we'll be the kind of receptive soil that the seed goes into, touches our heart, and we say, Lord, make me grow and give me eternal life. So let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. And Lord, I would just echo your invitation to us to be good soil to your word. And I would pray that, Lord, if there is anyone here who has not become that soil, that, Lord, you would... Open their hearts to you even now. 
and that they would receive you and allow your seed, your word, which has been presented to come into our hearts and abide there and grow there and result in great fruit a hundredfold, sixtyfold, or thirtyfold. Lord, I pray each and every person here this day would know you. And if anyone doesn't, I pray that they might pray a prayer like this. Yeshua, thank you for sowing your seed. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. And plant your seed fully and deeply into my heart. And may I, as a result, experience life everlasting with you, for which I am grateful and for which I am thankful. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.